Basically, guys, thank you so much. Thank you for the work you've been putting in. If you catch one of them after service, tell them you love it. What a blessing. Good to have you back this week, Devin. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Oops, make that chapter 6. We've graduated. If maybe you've read the report, I don't know, ahead of schedule, but as we as we're wrapping up with Ephesians here, we've just got the um, chapter 6, and it's really relatively short um, in what I've uh, decided to do in it, uh, and then we will go right into um, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, so that we can work on our eldership study as we go forward as a church. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, we're going to work on verses 1 down through 4 this morning, 1 down through 4, the Lord's Day, January 28th, 2024. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Amen. What a power-packed set of verses. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll get started. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come today, we're humbled before you with the truth of your word here before us, Father, the study that we've been going through with, uh, as we've been studying godly marriage, what uh, godly women and godly men, and now godly offspring, and Father, how it works in the kingdom and your kingdom and how you're building uh, godly people here in this place to take your message forward, to fill your church. We're thankful for the work that uh, you're doing in our midst. Father, I just ask you as I open my mouth this morning to speak more about your word, that you go beyond my simple words and that you speak directly to the heart of your people through the power of the Holy Spirit. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray this day and ask these things. Amen. And if you guys remember, we've been... Um, working off of one concept here, and I'm so thirsty this morning, I apologize immediately, but it's like really hot in here today. We've been talking about thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we've tied that to the scriptural mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill and subdue the earth and have dominion over it. That's what God gave Adam and Eve to do, and through extension through them, since we are of those people, of Adam and Eve, we are their sons and daughters sitting here today through Noah and his family through the flood. And even unto this day, that command still is for us. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill and subdue the earth. But the only way that we can do that is in Christ. And in Christ, we can be the godly wives who submit to their husbands and respect them and be the godly men that love their wives like Christ loved the church so that we can carry out what God's called us to do. We can only do that in Christ. Listen to me, the short pithy statement is that grace restores nature. That is that God gave us his son Jesus Christ so that we could be redeemed of our sin 
and it's being redeemed of that sin and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we're able to be the husbands we're called to be and the wives we're called to be and we're able to raise the children we're called to raise so that we can complete what God has called us to do in glorifying him. Now, we've used the longer statement through these last, I believe it's four weeks, um, from Herbert Bob Inc., a Dutch theologian that lived just around uh, before and after the turn of the 20th century from 1854 to 1921. He posits this same truth like this. The essence of the Christian religion consists in this, that the creation of the Father, devastated by sin, is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the Holy Spirit into a kingdom of God. So God created, he created Adam and Eve, and they were without sin and able to do all that he commanded them to do. They chose to sin, and because they chose to sin, our nature was completely corrupted to a sin nature, and we were unable to obey God the way God originally created us. But he sent his son because God doesn't waste anything, does he? You ever notice that in your life? God brings you to something, he makes something of it for you. He makes all things work to the good for those who are called according to his purpose and love him. Whatever it is, even if it's cancer, brother, even if it's a car accident, even if it's winning the lottery, he's going to bring, right, amen on the last one for everybody, but he's going to bring that out to your good. This is, this is why complaining is so bad. Because when you complain, you're complaining against the situation, but you're actually complaining against God. If you truly believe that God is doing everything in your life to your good, to work, you in a, work in you his will for his pleasure and for his glory, how could you ever complain? But we do, don't we? We grumble and complain, but it's not the situation we grumble and complain against. It's God Almighty himself. So in everything that God is doing, even in the fall of mankind into the sin nature, he is recreating us through the blood of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to be his kingdom. And it is of that kingdom he wants them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And it is by the spreading of the gospel that we're able to complete that task here on earth. Right? Amen? So that's the overall gist of this. And of course, God's holy word, all of God's holy word, is the work of the Spirit providing Christians directions and instructions so that they can be built into the kingdom of God, so that they can live in a way that pleases God. And the word of God then is an instruction manual that gives unbelievers the knowledge of salvation, yes, and believers the knowledge of how to be fruitful, to multiply and subdue the earth. The Bible gives the believers the knowledge required to bring about what we've called throughout this series, fruitful flourishing. And that is, you remember what we said about flourishing, is that when we follow the concepts and the commands and precepts of Almighty God, our lives flourish. Even if difficult things come our way, we can flourish because God is working those difficult things out to our own good. And to add to that, children and joy, and that is part of the marriage relationship, right? Part of it is, uh, in my wife, I find my closest companion, my come comrade right my friend my my go anywhere do anything what's that what is it the kids say ride or die that's it who said that was that you how do you know that oh my gosh see see how she works she's even helping me preach this morning she's my ride or die 
of course, I'll just pray for your pastor because anytime he preaches about marriage, the Satan just punches our marriage in the gut because he doesn't like you to understand what a good marriage is because he doesn't want you to be fruitful and multiply. He doesn't want you to flourish. But the God of heaven does when we listen to him we flourish. So the word of God is an instruction manual that gives unbelievers the knowledge of the salvation and believers the knowledge of God on how to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. The Bible gives believers the knowledge required to bring about fruitful flourishing. And the first necessity of fruitful flourishing, which is a tongue twister, is a productive home. A productive home. A productive home has two godly parents. Now listen to me. We said this as we began this. I know that everybody here has made some mistake with marriage and their own children, but that doesn't negate what God's calling the young people here today to do to their marriages and with their children, okay? And because Christ forgave you, it doesn't negate your responsibility to begin to live, I don't care if you're 25 or 75, under the commands that he's given you to live. So two godly parents... A productive home begins with a godly man who loves his wife like Christ loves the church. We see that in chapter 5. Let's look at that, verses 25 through 27. It says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Oh, the word does the work here. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives even as they love their own bodies. He who loves his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So not only does a man love his wife like Christ loves the church, but he loves his wife as himself. And a godly woman who possesses the imperishable beauty of a gentle spirit and a quiet spirit in submission to God's plan for marriage makes up two godly parents. We see that in verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. Remember, we talked about how important it was to understand what the true beauty of a wife or a woman is. Because the physical beauty fades, right? Men, we're attracted to the physical beauty, absolutely no doubt. And that's exactly what happened to Adam there in the garden. Whenever he, he was put to sleep and God took from his side and he made Eve, right? He saw her there in the garden. He said, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. Get over here, Right? He was physically attracted to her, but he was mentally and spiritually attracted to her in the fact that he understood that now he could complete the mandate that God had set him on to be fruitful, multiply, and fill and subdue the earth. She was his complement. So the physical beauty is a part of this, yes, but the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, those are imperishable beauties of women. It's so important to understand that if you're looking for a godly wife. So a productive home is a home where the husband and wife have willingly left their own mother and father. We see that there in verse 31, uh, father's home, and they have come together in covenant marriage to, and this word cleave to one another, cleave to one another, become one flesh. 
That's not only in relationship, but that's in production of godly offspring. That's what a productive home is, is that it's a growing relationship between the male and the female that, that shares the gospel with the world. It's a, it's a part where the male and he, everything that he does and everything that he wants to be, he willingly goes out and he works to provide and protect, and he willingly puts himself away so that he can give and sacrificially take up the responsibility that he's called to do but it's also a relationship where the woman does the same she gives of herself in such a way to the lord first but to her husband and to her family that 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 grows into something very special and very strong they cleave to one another through thick and thin through good and bad right have you heard the marriage vows lately through sickness and in health till death do they part that's what cleaving is that's what creates a productive home. And then that productive home produces children, and it leads us to where we are in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. A productive home is a home that produces joy, the joy of a husband and wife relationship. The bond creates a unique pair that is strong, and it's worth dying for. Right? How many of you men wouldn't stand and fight to the death for your family? It creates something very unique. It creates something worth dying for and an impenetrable force, as Liz and I like to say, ably resisting all of the enemy's fiery darts. A productive home creates a bond where the husband willingly will work endless hours to provide and protect and joyfully takes up the sacrificial responsibility of dying to himself to maintain this family. The bond produced, that's produced is, or that it's productive in producing is companionship, it's a ward against sexual immorality. It produces godly offspring and builds around it a fruitful... It doesn't stay within itself. It builds a fruitful, flourishing community of people that support it and one another, and especially when it's practiced in the church. Grab a hold of this, guys. A productive home becomes productive in a community as, we eat, as each child that we make in a productive home grows and marries this fruitful flourishing grows exponentially because each child marries they often do so in this close community just outside of them and this pairing results in strongly bonded communities that are invested in the welfare of one another each needing and benefiting from what the other has to give i wrote down just a little illustration of how that works you see the reason that 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 satan and the culture can separate us is because we're not closely bonded. When, we, when we're closely bonded, husband and wife, when we understand that it's a religious act first and that it's to the glory of God and that it's for being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it and that it's, it brings God glory, it's what he's called us to do. When somebody pokes at that relationship, it's less easily uh, disbanded, you know, and then the kids come and it gets stronger and then the kids grow, and there's cousins and uncles, and that family is big, and it grows, and it creates a nucleus that, that is flexible. It, it doesn't tear apart easily because there's an investment there. There's a cleaving. So I wrote this little illustration to help maybe show you what that is a little bit. It's this. This is how we benefit from that type of relationship and these from, from fruitful flourishing and how it grows into a community because my auto shop, fixes the dentist car that filled my cousin's tooth so he could get back to work in his construction job building a new office for Dr. Johnson, Julie's fiance. You know Julie who cuts my hair on Thursday. 
You see how it connects to one another and we're intimately involved with one another. Whenever this fruitful flourishing grows in the church and in the family, it grows out into the community around it. It builds strong families, strong churches, and strong communities. You guys see that? Amen? So as, uh, and, and this is why covenant marriage is so important. A man loving his wife like Christ loved the church and the wife respecting her husband, covenanting together in a productive marriage. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so important in our culture today. So as believers, we can confidently take up the cultural mandate that God gave Adam in Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill and subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Listen, we were supposed to be the co-regents, and this week my uh, young protege, Stevie McAdams, and his wife, Lainey, welcome into the world. They're 26 years old, their third child, uh, Miss Isla Marie, right? Isla Ruth, amen? What a beautiful thing uh, Liz and I have gotten to share with this young couple uh, as their family has grown over the last grown over the last four years now to three children. And I told him, I said, brother, I said, uh, he, he had texted me, I think it was Tuesday, and he said, we're going to the hospital. Laney's contractions are real, you know, really uh, deep. And the doctor said to bring her in. And they got there Tuesday, and it was like in the middle of the afternoon. And, and he texted me again. He says, we're here, but they're letting us go because she's not close enough and they're really busy. And I said, Stevie, I said, son, are you okay? Are, are, you, are you all right? You sure you're good to drive home, right? You need to get some help. And then Thursday, or excuse me, Wednesday afternoon, they went back because the contractions were getting more severe. And he said, they rushed us right into the, to the delivery and put her right into the room. I said, Stevie, are you okay, man? You sure are you okay? He said, yeah, and Laney's okay too. I said, this is great. We're going to have a baby, right? Bringing another child into the world is the most amazing thing, but it's also the most amazing responsibility. That's what this little short passage in chapter 6 begins with, building godly children in a productive household. Building godly children in a productive household. Read with me again verses 1 through 4 in chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Well, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's important to have parents that are worthy of obedience. Now, we're supposed to obey and honor our mother and our father because they're our mother and our father. That's the spirit of the law of God in the fifth commandment. But we're also supposed to be parents that children find the right nurture and admonition of the Lord in. We need godly parents, just as uh, chapter 5, verses 21 down through 33 give us. We need two godly parents teaching children in that household. For he says, this is right. It's right that a child honor his parent. It's right that a child obey his parent when it's done in the Lord, because that presupposes that the parent is teaching the child what is right in the Lord, and that that also presupposes that if there's a right way to do it, there's a wrong way to do it. Does it not? It does. And we see the result of the wrong all around us. Paul says when we go back to the Greek, we get a fuller understanding of what is being taught here. And it also opens up a further discussion regarding what a faithful or a covenant child is and does. The word we're working with here is translated as right. This is right in the Lord. It's the word group diakos where we get diakosune, 
which means righteousness. That's what right means here. Teach them in the way of what is right or righteous. And we go a little bit further and say in the context of God, that is the same work, as I said, as diakosune is righteousness. Therefore, in Greco-Roman tradition, it denotes a person who is one who upholds the customs and the norms and the behaviors of that culture. That's what the word is pointing to here. It's insinuating the behavior of the culture being put into the child, that the child is given the ability and the instruction to fit within the culture, including especially public service within that culture and, and with a keen sense to teaching and training the child in a way that makes for a well-ordered and civil society. Sounds like my flourishing uh, society that I'm talking about within marriage, right? Fruitful flourishing. All that to say that there's a right way to be a good kid and there's a wrong way, and the Bible denotes both of these by mountains of evidence clearly perceived in our society today between parents who have taken care of their duty and raised children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and parents that have not. The Bible talks about it from front to back. All you need to do is spend a little time there. Psalms 127, 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. It's not saying stop. It's not saying that global warming is a problem. You need to only have 1.3 children. It says, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with covenant godly children. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Proverbs 23, verses 24 through 25. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. There's a, an amount of pride there a parent has that comes from all the effort it takes to raise a child. Proverbs 29, 15, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So the Bible talks about, over and over, about getting this right and growing children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and what happens in society when that doesn't take place, when the child is left on their own. It talks over and over about this, many passages, many scriptures. But at the heart of this little passage, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. To honor your father and mother is the first commandment with a promise. It's the promise uh, that was the Deuteronomic prom promise to all of the children of Israel. And that is that if you honor your father and mother in this, in the nurture and the admonition and the teaching and instruction of the Lord, and if your parents are faithful to it, you will live long and prosper is it Spock that says that? Live long and prosper? Is it? Yeah. But it said it in the Bible first. You'll be blessed. Blessed with long life and peace and joy. So it's when we get into the last words there in verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction. Right there is the heart of this whole passage. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What it's talking about is the moral and religious and the universal and the intellectual training of the child. It is the whole child. It is everything that a child needs to do what is right. That is to fit into society, 
to be productive, to grow up and be that child that grows up and separates from mother and father and married to his godly wife and, you know, that fruitful, flourishing, productive household. That's what we want to create. That's what God's word does. So it's this teaching is so important when the child is little because it's in that growing up age that the child is enculturated with the word of God, with the truth of God, so that they can understand the will of God and bring glory to God. And there the word uh, discipline is probably the most important word in this passage, and it's the Greek word padeia, padeia. At its core, padeia motivates our decisions and behavior through our affections. Because it influences each person in a culture, padeia forms the culture. How do we think? How do we vote? How do we marry? Do we have large families? Do we have small families? Do we do productive things? Do we start a revolution? A million actions lie on the surface. Layers of influence and supposition lie just under each. Padea lies at the deepest level. It is the blueprint of thought and affections and narrative through which every one of us views everything. Because it is the building block of culture, it determines the future of a people themselves. Padea... The discipline and instruction of the Lord is the first building block that any child should have. And we live in a world shaped by padea, and yet we take it for granted. In fact, most people have never heard this word. They've certainly never heard it. Uh, you got to go back about 100 years before it was preached often in church. And yet this word was foundational to everything Greek thought would have understood at the time. They so wanted that child to be a Greek citizen a citizen of Greek culture, that this one word meant that everything that shapes that child must be done intentionally so that the final product be a successful human being within the culture, within the Greek culture. Charles Hodge said this, it means the training or education of a child, including the whole process of instruction and discipline. It is the act of reminding one of his faults or duties Children are not to be allowed to grow up without care or control. They are to be instructed, disciplined, and admonished so that they be brought up to the knowledge, self-control, and obedience that's required. This whole process of education is to be religious. In fact, I like what Doug Wilson says. After coming to worship service on Sunday morning, the most religious thing you do is educate your child. And I would be remiss if I didn't say that God gave you that child and you will be responsible on judgment day for what you taught that child. This whole process of education is to be religious and not only religious but Christian. It is the nurture and admonition of the Lord which is the appointed and the only effectual means of attaining the end of education. Where this means is neglected or any other substituted in its place, the result must be disastrous Failure. That's what we see in our culture today. So you have the moral and religious and the universal and the intellectual part of the training all being said in this word, Greek padeia. Paul's saying it's important to raise up the child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Why? First, because the corrupt nature of the child has to be understood. The training of the child has to consist of that which reverts the nature of the child to his natural order. As I started this, I said, and as we talked about through the weeks of this little mini-series is the fact that we were created with a perfect nature. We were 
not sinners. As Adam and Eve were created, they were able to do what God commanded them before sin came into the world. But sin has so had an effect on our minds that there's only one way that we can be recreated back to that point, and that is through the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Because what a child needs most is to understand who he is before the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's condemned, that he understands that he is a sinner, and that all of that teaching that comes from his parents need to be instruction that leads him through that gate of understanding that what his nature is drawing him to is not necessarily what his creator is calling him to. Does that make sense? And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in you believers who have the Holy Spirit. He's recreating you. So that corrupt nature has to be addressed. A child's education must be in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord because that child is first and foremost a sinner who needs to be reconciled to God. Loving the truth of God before he can possess the wisdom that comes from God. Before I've taught you that that's the difference between homo sapien and homo adoron. Remember that, guys? Quickly, what is that? Homo sapien, homo means man, right? Sapien means where we get the word sentient or thinking or conscience man. And adoron, homo adoron means man worshiping, adore. Worshiping man. Homo sapien cannot become homo adoron without Jesus Christ as his Lord. Homo sapien can have no wisdom until he first becomes homo adoron. Why? Glad you ask. Because as Jesus, as Pilate asked Jesus when he was judging Jesus, right? Jesus was totally innocent. And Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? In John 18, 37 and 38, Jesus says this, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Certainly to understand truth, you have to become first homo adoron before you can become homo sapien. Because this is what God is seeking, John chapter 4. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Father is seeking homo adorons, not homo sapiens. In fact, Paul would tell us that it doesn't matter how smart we are, we can't get ourselves up to God. We first have to succumb to the foolishness of the preaching of the message. Of the gospel. Turn with me real quick, if you will, in Colossians, just two books further back in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2, and here's the basis for all of Padaya, all of the discipline and instruction that a child should ever have, is because all wisdom and knowledge is in Christ. Colossians 2, 1 through 5. I won't keep you too much longer. Paul says there in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he said, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Listen to me, beloved. Not only are we talking about children in your home as you grow them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but we're talking about us as children of God. Paul struggled so that the children in the first century church would know the true God. 
We struggle so that our children will know the true God. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Why? So that they be knit together as one, that they may be encouraged being knit together in love. Why? To reach all the riches of the full assurance of the understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. God's mystery. That's what he's doing in this world. That is the gospel, yes, but that is what he's bringing about by being fruitful, multiplying, filling, and subduing the earth. That's what he's bringing about by bringing godly women and godly men together to have a productive home that's fruitful and flourishing that is raising godly children. I want you to know all of God's mystery, all of God's truth, which is in Christ. Do you see it? It's only in Christ. It's only found in Christ. To teach a child outside of Christ is to exacerbate that child. And look what he says in verse 3. If you want to teach somebody wisdom, go to the fountain of wisdom. Don't go anyplace else. In whom, that is Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They're all there in Christ. The Holy Spirit reveals them to us. And that's where our training and instruction begin for our children and for productive households. Don't miss the rest of it. I say this in order so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. We live in a society that's largely deluded. Paul's worry was that some false teaching would come in. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 just briefly with me. Let's look at this a little bit further. If all the knowledge and wisdom is in Christ, we need that revealed to us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 beginning in verse 6, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, though it's not a wisdom of this age or rulers of this age. That's how we teach children today, by and large. Those things are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The rulers of this age didn't understand this, because if they would have, they would not have crucified Jesus. But, but as it is written, verse 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man has imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things can't be taught from a book, except the book that you're holding to read these words from. Verse 10, these things God's revealed to us through his spirit. The spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one can comprehend the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Listen very closely, beloved. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit from God, so that we might understand things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person can't do this. Why? Because he see it there, verse 14, he does not accept the things of the spirit of God. They're literally moronic to him. That word folly in the Greek is morose, where we get our word moronic. They're foolishness to him. And look at what our secular society would do and say today if we said, we need to put the Bible back in our schools. The first thing our children need to know is about God. And then teach them algebra. They would call you a fool. They've called me a fool more than once. But the natural person, verse 14, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. 
he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person then is able to judge or understand all things and it's to be judged by no one for who is understood. Do you see it? Verse 16, this is the culmination of teaching Christ. That's why the nurture and admonition of your children should be in the Lord and him first for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, rhetorical, but we have what? The mind of Christ. Beloved, we cannot leave God out of the training of children. Every child must be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord for it to be a fruitful, productive household. doesn't matter if that starts at age 2 or age 20. If it's your child, you still have time to teach them about the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And what is it that bridges that barrier? What is it that closes that gap? What is that one thing that allows for all of our mistakes yet lets the Holy Father, God of heaven, use us as people to glorify him? It's called the gospel. The gospel. The gospel is what our children need. The gospel is what your children need. The gospel is what your family needs. It's what your wife needs. It's what your husband needs. It's what your cousin needs. The gospel is what changes you. The gospel is what matures you. The gospel is what brings you into Christ. The gospel is what lets you understand the truth of God. The gospel is what lets you understand that even a process like this might even begin to be pleasing to God. The gospel is not a one-time act with a single action, but the gospel is a lifetime action with eternal implications, beloved. If you're continually interacting with the gospel, you're continually interacting and being matured in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul says here to train up the child in the way he should go, it's an all-encompassing statement of the import of training your child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Amen? This is why we do school the way we do it, beloved. If you go back, just jump back 100 years. Don't read anything from 1915 on, but go before that and see what they thought about education. You guys, most of you here already know. Most of you go, well, they had, you know, we do Sunday school. You guys missed Sunday school this morning, by the way. I'm going to talk to you about that. In our Sunday school class, we're going through our confession of faith. Before the 1950s, they taught kids a confession of faith. They catechized them. They still do it in Christian schools today and Catholic schools, yes. Beloved, there's no way to leave out God and make a healthy human being. Jesus Christ must be central to your life today, to your children's life, to the life of the church, to the life of the community, and to the life of the people on earth. Short of that, there is no hope. Beloved, if you're, you're a young person here today thinking about having children, there's nothing more important than your children know who Jesus Christ is. Amen, mom and dads? All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the grace you give us. We see in that gospel of truth uh, all of our mistakes being forgiven. That's what the gospel is all about. That's why we can understand that what you're doing and what you're calling us to do 
will bear fruit. Because it's not of ourselves, it's what you've called us to do. It's the same thing that we're asking our children to do, is to honor our Father, our Heavenly Father who is in heaven, and train in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Father, I pray for our children. I pray for them because I see them continually. I pray and my heart is burdened for our schools that you would open a way for that word to be brought back, that that nurture and admonition of each and every child in this culture would come from and be of the Lord. However, that has to happen. Judgment, revival. Children are being carried off to the slaughter. Do a work in our midst, Father. Give us a burden. Not only as godly men and women who are looking at marriage and one day having children, but as godly parents who have had our own children, but as godly people in this community who see the children around us, break our hearts for them, and that they be trained in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Thank you, Father, for your grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray this morning. Amen. Amen. Amen.